Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Faber podcast, which features an extended interview with Michael Frain. Michael, who was born in 1933 and published his first novel, The Tin Men, in 1965, belongs to a small group of writers who've enjoyed considerable success both as dramatists and novelists. To this can also be added the distinction of being an acclaimed translator of Chekhov and author of philosophical works of non-fiction, travel writing and, most recently, a memoir of his father, entitled My Father's Fortune, which was shortlisted for the Costa Biography Award and won the 2011 Penn Ackerley Prize. All in all, the list of his published titles now occupies a whole page at the start of his books, and a new novel is on its way next year. In this interview, we talk about Michael's early life, his suburban childhood during wartime, his relationship with his father, and the impact of the sudden early death of his mother when Michael was 12. We also talk about his writing career, of course, and the differences between writing novels and plays. My father moved lightly over the earth, scarcely leaving a footprint, scarcely a shadow, Michael Frayne writes near the start of his memoir. It is his project, in my father's fortune, to try to recapture those evanescent traces of a life, and that quest turns into a process of both discovery and self-discovery. But Michael describes the project as a reluctant quest. Why reluctant, I wanted to know. Um, I wrote the book because my children nagged at me. They said uh, they didn't know much about their grandparents, and they felt they had arisen, as Rebecca said, uh, from an unknown place. I resisted it for a long time because I thought it was going to be a pious chore and of course as soon as I got started and began to think about my father and uh, remember him and remember the past, I found it far from a pious chore, I found it an extremely emotional experience. It was also a very interesting one because I hadn't known very much about my father's background and when I started to look into the record. I should say my father was a salesman, he wasn't a public man, so there's no great archive of material about him. And most of the research I did were in uh, public documents like um, birth certificates, death certificates, uh, census returns and so on. But um, when I began to look in particularly the census return for 1901 and saw quite how many of them there were in my father's family living in two rooms in uh, North London, I realised how poor the family had been. I hadn't realized, quite realised that before. And it was rather an eye-opener. And I began to see rather better the problems that my father had been set in life and how he'd um, managed to overcome them. And it really rather changed my view of him. If when you think about your parents, you don't think about them in a moral context. You don't think, are they good people or bad people? Or not usually, I know, if they're, if they're absolute monsters, you do. But uh, normally, you just see them in a kind of day-to-day way without thinking whether they're good or bad. And it was only when I began to think about uh, the way my father had actually coped with really quite severe difficulties in his life that I thought, um, came to think he was a good man. That was a surprising new thought. He'd had quite a burden placed on him early in life in the family context. He'd had to really support a number of members of his family and had to deal with congenital deafness in the family. So it was it was a, it was a difficult, and as you say, overcrowding. So it was a very difficult start, really. He had he had a rather bad start, uh, mostly because his father was a drinker, as I discovered from <coughs> something my cousin told me. Uh, his father had um, 
begun life as an assistant in a, in a china shop in Plymouth and had risen to uh, actually own his own shop. But then he'd drunk the proceeds and lost the shop and brought the family to London, I suppose, to make a new start and gone back professionally to where he'd begun as an assistant in a, in a china department. But he obviously was completely feckless and my father had to leave school at 14 to uh, help support his mother and uh, one of his sisters. Both his parents and his uh, siblings were congenitally deaf and one of his sisters was very deaf indeed and also slightly mentally handicapped. And although my father met my mother when he was 18 and she was 14 and they instantly fell in love and never had eyes for anybody else, they had to wait I think it was 11 years before uh, my father felt he could afford to get married because he was supporting his mother. And then as soon as he did get married, and um, he and his new wife moved into a flat in North London, his wife's family collapsed for much the same reason. His father-in-law, I don't think he was a drinker, but he was, uh, he was feckless, absolutely unable to uh, support himself. And uh, mother-in-law had to move in with them, a terrible start, and remain with them for uh, another dozen years. So that was, uh, that was difficult. And then uh, in his, I, I think in early middle age, the family deafness caught up with him. And he was a salesman by trade. Very difficult if you're a salesman to go out and face the customers every day if you don't know what they're saying. Hearing aids were still very primitive then, and every morning before my father went out, he'd wind himself into a network of wires and processors and microphones and earpieces, two separate batteries, one enormous battery in his waistcoat pocket here, another even bigger battery in the, his back pocket around the back. Very unreliable machine, often breaking down. Um, and he was selling stuff that... Um, you, you might say it's an advantage for some salesmen not to hear people uh, declining to, to buy what they're offering, but my father had very technical stuff to offer. He was selling uh, roofing materials and uh, rainwater goods. So mostly he was dealing with builders and architects who must have had endless technical questions to ask him. You know, what's the, the fire resistance of this stuff? How long does it take to install things and so forth? And one of the ways he dealt with his deafness it was with humour. He kept the conversational initiative by telling jokes as so, as so far as possible. He didn't have to hear what people said to him. And I suppose that probably had some influence on me. I rather, rather acquired this style as a boy. And when you look at the photograph of him as a young man, which you reproduce in the book, what do you see? What kind of character do you see kind of latent emerging? In the photographs of him as a young man, he, he looks, uh, he's very sharp, very sharply dressed, rather cocky, very self-confident. All of those qualities he needed, of course, as a salesman. He was very quick-witted, and I used to drive him mad because I was so slow. I mean, I tell people this now, people think, well, uh, being falsely modest or whatever, because I've gone on past exams and things in my way, my father never did. But I'm afraid it's absolutely literally true. He was very quick, and my sister was very quick, and I was very dim and very slow, and I used to drive them mad. 
My father used to call me uh, boy Weary Willie after a tramp in a cartoon because he thought I was so slow. The other difficulty I set him in life was what he really wanted. He didn't want much. He was he was not a tall, demanding father. He just really wanted a son who would play cricket, perhaps not for England, but for a good county side. And um, as he slowly came to realise that I was not even going to play for my class at school, let alone a county side, he must have been deeply disappointed. And it took him quite a long time to accept that I had some other qualities, abilities to write and so forth which in his eyes never really made up for lack of sporting ability. But we found, eventually, we found some sort of common ground. Well, he suggested that you become a journalist, I think, when you were aged about eight. You'd written an essay, and he it was who first put that idea in your head. Yes, I'd written some essay at the very first school I went to on the uh, house I would like to live in one day. And... um, Something about it must have caught my father's fancy because he said, well, probably just absolutely casually, uh, maybe you ought to be a, a journalist. Who knows? Maybe this idea then seeded itself in my brain and, and took root there. Now tell me about the house that you did live in and the, the milieu that you grew up in in the, in, in the, in the, in the, in the 30s and, and the 40s. Because it sounds from the book as though your parents never felt quite at home there. They always felt slightly out of place and that feeling communicated itself to you too. So what, what, what sort of world was it that you were growing up in? Well, after this pretty tough start in North London, my father did well as a salesman and was able to move out to the outer suburbs, southwest London, and live in a detached house in a nice quiet cul-de-sac in the leafy suburbs. But he didn't quite fit in because he still retained a lot of his, the style he'd acquired as a young man. Nobody else in our street called people governor, which my father did. Nobody else in our streets um, used rhyming slang, which my father did. And my father never acquired the basic skills, basic middle class skills of acquisition and possession. If you're born into the middle classes, if you're born into any class that's got some money, it comes automatically. It's like, it's like a language. If you're a born English speaker, it doesn't seem any great skill to speak English. But if you have to learn English from scratch, you realise that learning language takes a lot of effort and a lot of skill. And my father never quite got the idea that you buy things and own them in life. Most of the stuff we had about the house uh, had come to us by, in, by other means. People had passed on bits of furniture they didn't want. Neighbours, um, relatives, they passed on old bicycles, old sofas, uh, and so on. So, for instance, we have a loft. How do people get into their lofts? They have a loft ladder or they have a step ladder they stand on. My father would never have wasted money on fripperies like a step ladder. He got into the loft by putting the bathroom stool in the middle of the landing, standing on that, then getting one foot up onto the door handle on one side, another foot on the door handle on the other, then a foot onto the top of the door frame, another foot onto the top of the door frame, getting his head wedged against the hatch to the loft and lifting the, the hatch 
cover off as he hauled himself up on the edge of the loft. And the idea that it might have been simpler just to go out and buy a stepladder never entered his head. Why waste money on stepladders when you can do it with a bathroom stool? And a lot of that's very funny. You know, it's a sort of it's a light motif that runs through the book. These things which which come and go and are acquired from we we know not where. But by the time you leave that house, it's actually rather poignant because you you kind of shed it like a skin and you're gone. You take almost nothing with you, and at that point, it it does it does seem quite stark and quite affecting. This this fact that you you're, you're not sort of acquisitive in the usual middle class way. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we all got uh, attached to the house. The greatest problem in my father's life, uh, the great tragedy for him and for my sister and me, was that uh, our mother died uh, when I was 12. And obviously it was, a, it was a shattering blow, but it sent my father a lot of practical problems about how to get my sister and me looked after when he was out at work all day. And he tried various um, solutions to this problem, none of them very satisfactory, and in the end he married again. And I don't think he married again just to get my sister and me looked after. But I think his motives were mixed, like most people's motives for doing most major things in life. I'm pretty sure with hindsight that one of his thoughts was here was a widow living around the corner who hadn't been able to have children of her own, longed to have children. Here was a widower with two children who needed looking after it seemed to be the ideal natural arrangement and the lady he married was very comfortably off had a, a much larger and more comfortable and better equipped house than we did and we all moved out of our shabby house into her grander house and took almost literally nothing with us apart from the clothes we stood up in so it was a, a major transformation in the middle of my teens and of course, as you might expect, this ideal arrangement, like most ideal arrangements in life, didn't work out uh, quite as well as, as people had hoped. Your mother's death occurs about halfway through the book, and it's a, it's a very shocking moment, understandably. But almost more shocking is the fact that thereafter, she seems never to be referred to. It's as you describe her as having become an unperson. And she, she isn't referred to again in the house. I mean, that. How, how did you experience that as a child? How did you come to terms with that? Did you accept that as, as just how things were, or was it constantly troubling you beneath the surface? Well, at the time, it seemed absolutely natural that uh, we never spoke or spoke about her again. We couldn't. We, uh, my sister and I, didn't have a a, a name for her. We didn't have a word we could refer to her by. I'm sure my father and other adults were trying to spare us pain by not talking about it. I think it was very much the style of the time that you didn't talk about painful things. I've gone around a lot talking about this book to audiences, and a lot of younger people in, in audiences at the end have said, but this is extraordinary, why did you never talk about your your mother again. But a lot of older people, people of my age, have said that's absolutely their experience. They've remembered they've lost someone when they were young and um, they simply weren't mentioned again. It certainly wasn't any, any desire to cover her up or hide her like, uh, like the victims of Stalinism. It was just thought to be too painful a subject 
ever to broach. Well, now, of course, the pendulum's gone the opposite way and everyone is getting grief counselling and being encouraged to work through their feelings and talk about their, their most painful emotions. I suppose that's better. I suppose it's better. I mean, you, you talk about your parents not having passed on to you the burden of indefinable constraint and the overarching cosmic awkwardness. Uh, well, what I was referring to was religious belief. Um, they never passed on any religious belief to me because they didn't have any of themselves. And uh, I've always been grateful for that. I think it is if you've been given a religious upbringing, I think it is difficult ever completely to free yourself from it. And that has never been a difficulty for me because it was never it was never imposed on me in, in the first place. My father had really very few beliefs in, in any sense, certainly absolutely no religious beliefs of any sort whatsoever. I think it was his experience as a boy which had um, knocked any religious belief out of him because he'd been a choir boy, he'd been a head choir boy in the local church and it left him with a lifelong love of music, a lifelong distaste for uh, the church and its practices. Yeah, you, you did have a flirtation with religion yourself, and you, you summed it up in a very funny sentence. I think you said, confirmed in February, apostatized in September. So it was a short-lived <laughs> flirtation. Yes. Well, I had various sort of religious <coughs> bits when I was a child. I remember, as I've said in the book, uh, uh, on Christmas morning, when my sister and I were just longing to get downstairs away from our presence, uh, forcing my sister to go through endless religious observations since it was Christmas morning before we went downstairs singing carols and uh, saying uh, prayers and whatnot. Torment, torment for her. But eventually um, it just slipped slipped off me and has never come back. You talked about your parents having that sense of never quite fitting in, but they had quite clear ideas about your education and the kind of children that you should mix with and the kind of children you shouldn't mix with, didn't they? It wasn't just my parents' view. It was the ethos of the, the uh, neighbourhood and the times. In the leafy suburbs where we grew up, no one would have dreamt of sending their children to state school. It was just an idea that wouldn't have entered their heads. Uh, so all the children in our streets, including my sister and me, were sent to, to private schools. And I was only taken out of this private school because of my mother's death. I assume, I'm not certain about this, I assume, because uh, my father, first of all, he got a housekeeper before he married again, and my father couldn't afford to pay my school fees and the housekeeper. And he managed to get me into a grammar school, Kingston Grammar School. And uh, the private school I'd been to was absolutely appalling, a hideous place where the uh, headmaster, a clergyman, who were also in the school, began the day by thrashing a queue of about 20 people after prayers and then thrashing more people in, uh, in batches throughout the day. And I thought that going, going uh, into a state school was going to be descending into the pit of hell. I couldn't imagine what it was going to be. I couldn't, it took me two years at Kingston Grammar School to see that there were no hidden uh, horrors in the school. It was a very straightforward place where there wasn't much bullying and... Uh, I, I think there was corporal punishment, but I never, I think I knew, I knew anyone who was caned at school. And people just got on with life and did their lessons, and, uh, and that was it. It took me a long time to 
to see that was possible in school. You don't spare yourself in, in quoting from your from your early somewhat um, what should I say somewhat somewhat pompous um, writings, diary writings, and and poetry. Well, I went through a very after the death of my mother. I've been shifted uh, from one school to another, and then from class to class. Um, I went through a very bad phase where I was uh, the bottom of the class all the time and spent all my efforts on mocking the staff. And then I began to uh, find an interest in um, literature and music with a great friend. We sort of explored and discovered uh, music and literature together. And it was the making of my life. But in the way one does, a reformed rake, no, no Puritan like a reformed rake, we slightly overdid it, and we both became colossal intellectual snobs. I've still got some of the poetry I wrote then, and some of the diaries I kept, and the sheer pretentiousness of them, and the sheer pompousness of my opinions, it... <laughs> <laughs> absolutely breathtaking and I couldn't resist quoting some of them in the book yes. Returning to your father Michael I mean you, you say in many points in the book several points in the book that he moved very lightly over the, the surface of the earth he, he, he didn't leave many traces and that's more than simply a matter of not being acquisitive of not accumulating material things what, what, what was it about him that made you feel that he, that he did move lightly in that way? Well, because he didn't own things. He didn't uh, make a world around himself in that way. And in the uh, after, after his second marriage, we all did have to rather fit in with the household that my stepmother ran. And he was, he was a bit diminished by that. But he didn't impose himself on the world. He didn't impose himself... On me, he didn't, as I said before, he didn't attempt to insist on certain beliefs in me. He didn't, uh, although he had little understanding of my desire to be a writer, he didn't insist. And, and he also, he thought my going to university was a total waste of time. But in the end, he, he let me do it. But he did, he did make an impression on people. One of the nice things about writing the book is I've had letters from a lot of people who knew my father, whom I've never heard of before, who remember him extremely clearly and remember him with great affection. And the one that touched me most was from uh, from a man who said he'd been in a hospital with my father when he was having his first cancer um, removed. I remember my father was. My father was having a really terrible time. He was very ill indeed. And this man said he, he was, he'd been a young man himself at the time, and he'd been in the hospital to have his appendix out, so not a very serious operation. But he said my, he was in the next bed to my father. My father realised that he was away from home, the young man was away from home and feeling rather homesick. My father kept a fatherly eye on him in hospital. I was very touched by that. Did you come to any conclusions about this question you pose early in the book about to what extent we make our own fortune and to what extent we are? that is just dictated by luck? I don't think there's any one answer to that question. I think everyone in life is, is dealt a certain hand, and some people are, are dealt much worse hands than other people. But I think everyone has some choice over the way they play the hands they've been dealt. And I think in my father's case, 
he was he was not a very mixed hand. He was um, he had these great disadvantages that I mentioned before, but he also had the advantages of intelligence, quickness, humour, charm, and confidence. He had a great deal of of self confidence, and they're they're quite good cards to have in one's hand. And I think, on the whole, he played the hand he'd been dealt really, really quite well. There's another theme, I think, running through the book, that of accumulating debt. You quite often say you've realised you've accumulated debts to people and haven't paid them back. I wondered if you felt, in some ways, writing the book was, in a sense, a part repayment of, of some of the debts you'd incurred. Yes, I think particularly I felt it was repayment of my debt to my father. I realised with hindsight that it was not the fashion then to be too encouraging to our children. I thought they might make them swollen-headed and so forth, so people were always slightly sarcastic about their children's efforts, and my father was. And it was not the fashion to be too overt in one's affection, particularly for one's children. But I think with hindsight, particularly when I was writing this book, I began to think about it again. And I think that my father probably did have quite strong feelings about my sister and myself. That in a way, he had the same kind of passionate feelings that I have about my children. I feel with hindsight that I didn't reciprocate clearly enough. I didn't make clear to him how much I loved him. A bit late now, 40 years after he's dead, to try and do it, but perhaps better to say something about it than to say nothing. I mean, he, write, he writes to you, I think, from his hospital bed during his final illness to say how much he's appreciated your visits and how yeah. much they've meant to him and sustained them. Yes. And you you didn't reply to him. Yes, as I say in the book, I still can't understand that. He had, after all the years of concealing his feelings, he did write very movingly to me about how much my visits to him in hospital meant. Uh, he said, of course, don't reply to this. Um, and I didn't. I, should, I took him at his word about not replying. And now that seems an act of such crassness. I can scarcely believe it of myself. But... Um, one doesn't always see things at the time, and one doesn't always seize the moment when one should. Now, Michael, your own your own story sort of fades out in the book when you are leaving Cambridge and just about to go to the 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 Guardian, the Manchester Guardian, as it then was. Do you remember what your ambitions were as you as you left Cambridge? I mean, you'd got you'd got one of only a couple, I think, traineeships on on the paper, which must have taken some doing. You don't say how you had achieved that, but what were you what were you going to Manchester, the Manchester Guardian, with? Well, I suppose I'd always known in life in some part of myself that I wanted to be a writer, but it didn't seem to be the kind of practical ambition you can announce announce to the world or even to yourself. But I also wanted to be a journalist, I really did. Most of the time, if people had asked me what I wanted to be, I'd have said a journalist. I was extremely unclear about what journalism involved and what sort of journalism I wanted to do, and I can remember trying to impress a girlfriend at Cambridge by telling her that it was my ambition to be editor of The Observer by the time I was 30, which was a gross misunderstanding of my own abilities. I could have never have edited The, the Beano, let alone The Observer. And also a total misunderstanding of how the newspaper industry worked, because at that time The Observer was not only 
edited by David Astor. It was owned by David Astor, who was a millionaire. And to <coughs> edit The Observer, I would have had to buy him out, which was perhaps even more, uh, even less likely than becoming <coughs> becoming editor on the strength of my journalistic skills. But the, the idea of, of writing fiction, was that already present when you, when you came down from Cambridge? Yes, I think I knew I wanted to write fiction. I'd already written a lot of fiction, uh, short stories and plays and so forth when I was um, at school even, and a lot more when I was at university. So I, I suppose I assumed I was going to write fiction without being at all clear what sort of fiction it was I was going to write. And I wrote my first novel within a year or two of leaving Cambridge when I was working as a reporter on The Guardian in Manchester. It was very much a, a first novel based on personal experience. And I sent it to the literary agent I'd just acquired, who said uh, she liked the first 30 pages very much, but the next 300 were absolutely terrible, and advised me to put it in a drawer and forget about it, which I did. Plays, though, I had no intention of writing plays. I'd written a review as a, an undergraduate at Cambridge, and it had failed, and um, in the spirit of sour grapes, I turned against the theatre in general, and spent a lot of my... When I first became a columnist on The Guardian, then The Observer, I spent a lot of uh, time writing humorous columns about how ghastly the theatre was, what an embarrassing experience it was going to the theatre. I was just waiting for actors to forget their lines or, or drop their props. And it was many years, in fact it was in my late 30s before I was gradually reeled in to like uh, some unbeliever into the church or whatever to, um, to start writing plays. And what, what was it that, that did reel you in? What made you <laughs> think that you could... Um... Someone I knew was directing a, an evening of short plays about the state of marriage he needed one more to make up the the total before it came to the West End. And um, he asked me to do one. Well, it's very difficult to decline a challenge. So I wrote a very simple-minded short play about a young married couple who will have a go back for a romantic um, return to the uh, honeymoon hotel in Venice. Only now they have a small child. And it's about the difference that uh, children make to your life very simple-minded piece and I was absolutely astonished when the um, director rang the next week and says, uh, said the, the producer said he can't do this, it's too filthy. Well the producer was uh, Alexander Cohen, the great New York producer who was on this occasion working in London and he had a reputation for doing difficult work. He'd done the first Broadway production of uh, The Homecoming which was not the kind of thing that was done on Broadway at all at the time. And I said, Alex Cohen thinks my play is filthy. And the director said, yes, uh, Alex says he could never do a play in which a baby's nappy is changed on stage. I was so irritated by that, I wrote three more short plays and had an evening of my own plays, and that was my first show in the theatre. Universally bad notices, but it ran for... Um, it ran for six months because we had two stars, Lynn Redgrave and Richard Bryer. So it's all down to them rather than my, than my play. So it wasn't a complete disaster. 
Is the theatre crueler to a writer than the novel writing? Are, are the flops more of a flop and maybe the triumphs are more of a triumph? But it, it, sound, it sounds as though that theatre notices can really be quite damning in a way that novel reviews maybe are more attenuated. One is much more exposed in the theatre because there's a, an audience, uh, a living audience. And in the days I did that first show, there was still a first night clack group of friends who used to come and watch watch Act One. Then you go out and have a drink together in the interval and decide whether they liked the show or not. And if they didn't like it, they'd come back and catcall Act Two, which they did with my show. They didn't like it. They came back, they catcalled Act Two, and they booed the cast at the at the end. And then afterwards, they they saw me in the street and booed me personally in the street, which I thought was carrying things a bit far. Well, of course, the author doesn't have to go to the theatre. The, the actors do, and it's much worse the actors because if actors are in something that has been not been liked by critics and the public, they have to stand there night after night until it comes off and actually do it, whereas the author can uh, go and hide his head in a corner somewhere. But it does seem to me that um, if the actors are going to turn up for the first night at any rate, the, the author has some obligation to turn up as well. And um, it can be very painful if um, audiences don't like the show. It's notorious that if you overhear what anyone's saying as you come out of a show, even a successful show, you never hear any, anything good. And uh, Michael Codron, who's produced most of my plays, said that he was once coming out of the theatre at the end, not both uh, one of my shows, he assures me, and uh, not, not one of his shows, and uh, just behind uh, a very depressed-looking couple, and the man turned to the woman and said, well, all we need now is to find the dog's been sick in the car. <laughs> Michael, when you have an idea for new work, do you know very quickly if it's going to be a, a stage work or a, a work of fiction? Well, the idea really is uh, seeing some way of doing it. Um, an idea is not just thinking it would be nice to write a, something about uh, a debt crisis or whatever. The idea is is, is is seeing some way of doing it. That involves um, seeing whether it's a play or a, or a novel. I think I've only once been in any real doubt, and that was with an enterprise that became something called Now You Know, and I wrote it as a play, and. It really, I just couldn't make it. I did actually write it, but it plainly didn't work. And I thought, what's wrong with this? Uh, what's wrong is that to make this story work, we need to know what each of the characters is thinking about the other characters, because that's what the story is. And that's what you can't do on the stage and what you can do in a novel. So I then wrote it as a novel and published it. And it did moderately. And then I thought, now I know the story, I know the characters, and I know what they're all thinking. Perhaps I should go back to the situation we're in in life, where we don't know what each other's thinking, and write it as a play uh, where it's a problem for, for us and for the characters to know what each other's thinking. So I did. And the play wasn't a great success either, so um, there you go. I, th I think anything that's going to work, you probably know very clearly from the beginning, from the very beginning, whether it's a play or a book. 
And with Copenhagen, which has been a huge success, what, 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 what was the initial spark there? What was the question that you wanted to pursue and how did it come to you? What set it off was reading uh, a terrific book by the American writer Thomas Powers called Heisenberg's War, in which was the first time I'd read about the meeting that Heisenberg had in 1941 during the Second World War with, uh, uh, with his old friend and collaborator uh, Niels Bohr. But I'd known a certain amount about Bohr and Heisenberg and what they'd been doing in the 1920s because I studied philosophy, although I didn't know anything whatsoever about science. If you study philosophy, you can't help but be interested in the kind of questions that quantum mechanics throws up because they are profound philosophical questions about the nature of reality. And uh, I've for a long time been interested in the uh, question of motivation, human motivation. How do we know why people do what they do? How do we know why what we do ourselves? Uh, is it actually possible? And um, the question about Heisenberg's visit to Niels Bohr is why he undertook it. What, he, what was the point of his doing it? And people argued about it back and forth. And I thought this was a, a absolutely concrete example of the difficulty of knowing someone's motivation and about something very important, about a crucial subject. And it suggested a kind of parallel between the difficulty that I saw in establishing human motivation and the impossibility which Heisenberg had discovered in, uh, in the physical sciences and physics and introduced the world as the famous uncertainty principle for completely different reasons, absolutely no parallel, no parallel in the uh, grounds for uncertainty and psychological uncertainty and physical uncertainty. But it seems to me in both cases there is a theoretical barrier what Heisenberg showed that however you observe things, however good the instruments are, however much better they get, you still cannot know everything about the behaviour of a physical object. And I think similarly there is a theoretical barrier in understanding about people's thinking and feeling, which however good our neurology gets, we are not going to get beyond. When you're writing a a work. Do you have a sort of mental dial which controls the humour? I mean, that, that's a rather crude way to put it, but I mean, some of your works are, are farcical and some of your works are really quite serious. And are you aware of, as you're writing it, of a sort of appropriate level or the, or the level of humour that you feel comfortable with for a particular subject? Or does it, does it spring more naturally from, from the whole writing process? I think the humour comes out of the, uh, out of the subject. Some subjects have a comic aspect and uh, and some don't. I mean, in life in general, it seems to me everyone's experience of life is that some things in life are painful and serious and some are ridiculous. And uh, and some things uh, partake of both, they, they overlap. And it's the same when you write, you can't help seeing sometimes the ridiculous side of the events you're writing about. And other times uh, it's the more serious implications that uh, predominate. So does, does this, the Michael Arditi quote uh, that you are our most philosophical comic writer and our most comic philosophical, does that sort of ring true to you? Does that feel like a, that's something that you recognise? Well, I did study philosophy and 
I found it very suggestive, and I think there is some kind of philosophical underlay in, in most of the things I write. I hope not too obvious. Whether that's connected with the comedy or not, I don't know. I mean, does, does a comedy help get across difficult ideas that otherwise might be rather austere for, for a reader or for an audience? Oh, I see. I've, I've never, I've never thought. Uh, gosh, I could make this idea a bit more palatable by putting it in comic form, or make it a bit more explicable. No, no. I, it's just a lot of things about um, human behaviour which seem ridiculous. I have also philosophical connotations. And a lot of things about the world in general, which um, relate to relate to its metaphysics, if you like, where, what what kind of place it is, uh, are also quite comic. The title of your your Fleet Street novel, "Towards the End of the Morning," in the US was against entropy, and I wondered if that was if that was a running thread through your work that the, 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 the event of entropy and and, and resistance to entropy. <laughs> well, it's often seemed to me that human affairs are, are, are an attempt at a local reversal of entropy. Um, as you know, the second law of thermodynamics says that in any given system, entropy is increasing. It's to say, disorder is increasing, and that ordered systems are becoming less ordered. And what a lot of human life is, it seems to me, is an attempt to, to uh, halt that, or reverse it, or just to slow it down. I'm only too familiar with the entropic uh, tendencies of the houses we live in and the struggles we have to make to uh, slow the increasing entropy down. One of the things that does go through a lot of what I've written is not so much about entropy, but the idea that, that human beings are doing things all the time. It seems to me what's characteristic of human beings is they've always got some enterprise, they've got some, some business on foot um, something they're trying to trying to achieve. It might be something good, something noble, or something uh, vile. It might be something important or something trivial. But all the time, people are trying to do things. And sometimes, when I read other people's writings, I get the impression they see human beings as essentially passive. They're just sitting there suffering or having things happen to them. But it seems to me, from all my acquaintance with life, is things do happen to us we're always struggling 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 to to do things to impose our plans on the world and that i suppose is uh, attempting to stem entropy i was talking to michael frayne about his memoir of his father it's entitled my father's fortune and is available now in paperback as are all of michael's other books you can find out more details on the faber website at faber.co.uk You'll also find lots more interviews with Faber authors there. And if you've enjoyed this interview, do sign up for the monthly Faber podcast by visiting iTunes and typing Faber in the search box in the podcast category. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.